So, remember like when you're growing up and you're like late in your teenage years and you finally start to have conversations that are meaningful, things that like teenagers would say like blow their minds and you can recollect those things for the first time. Um, I, I remember that happening for me uh, at the Waffle House, uh, which is pretty funny for me and my friend Brad, where we spent a lot of our time. We were volunteer firefighters at the time, uh, 18, 19 years old, and we were out, and neither one of us were believers, and we would go out, and I was going to church here and there, and I would try to, you know, just process some of the things that I was experiencing at church with him, and I remember one time, again, at the Waffle House, we were having this conversation about the vastness of the universe, and <clears throat> I, I had thought about like how big it is outside of our little bubble here, but not to the extent that Brad and I were talking this particular night, and he made this comment. He goes, have you ever thought that like if you were just standing and you had like a rocket and you would propel yourself up out of the earth, off of the earth, if you didn't hit anything, you would never stop. And I was like, wow, man. Like, I've never thought of that before. (laughs) And at the time, I wasn't a believer, so that put a big pit in my stomach. Um, Because he's probably right. Like, if that were to happen, we we wouldn't stop. And I don't know, man, it just, it filled me with fear um, because I had contemplated my insignificance for the first time (laughs) at the age of 18 or 19 when this conversation was happening. And I was, the fear, like, grabbed a hold of me. Luckily, I was going to church at the time and um, was able to process those same things with people who were going to church. And uh, they turned, they you know, I, I became a Christian and, and things, started, things started to get different. And, um, and I tell that story because later in my life, I found this story in the Bible that some of you may know from Genesis 15, where uh, Abram goes outside to meet God and he looks up into the sky and he thinks and believes something very different. And so this is the story. It's Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. It says, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram replied, O Lord God, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram continued, "Uh, Behold, you have given me no offspring, so a servant in my household... Uh, will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one will not be your heir, but one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And the Lord took him outside and said, Now look to the heavens and count the stars if you are able. Then he declared, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abram, soon to be Abraham, looks into the sky before the time of light pollution, and I'm guessing 
he would have been overwhelmed by what God was telling him. Now, for the skeptics among us, you might be wondering, uh, how many stars are there exactly, and how does this line up? Well, currently, the best scientific guess is somewhere in the neighborhood of one septillion stars uh, in the observable universe. That's a one followed by 24 zeros. That's a lot. How many people are there? Well, currently, there's about seven and a half billion people living But over the course of human history, we can find varying numbers on this. There's somewhere between 108 and 125 billion people have ever lived. And as you can see, by the number disparity, we've got some catching up to do, right? But is that the point? Is that what he's talking about? I don't know. So today we're uh, continuing our series called Slow, and I know what you're thinking. Is this ever going to end? And no. No, it's not. It's called Slow Church, so deal with it. We'll go as slow as we want to up here. (laughs) No, seriously, we've got like two more weeks and then we're going to get into something else. So uh, moving on. Our topic today is abundance. And we're going to talk about abundance in such a way uh, that encourages us to partner with God in the stewardship of his kingdom. So Abram looks into the sky and he hears what God has to say. And he wasn't terrified, and he didn't spiral into some existential crisis. God was telling him not to worry about who his heir would be, that he would in fact give him one. But God takes it quite a few steps further when he points to the skies, and he says, your offspring will outnumber the stars. And that begs the question, does he mean this literally? It's hard for me to imagine that. It's hard for me to imagine that he means it quite literally. Maybe. But working with that, I think what we find in Abram's response gives us a pretty good indication of what's going on here when when we read, Abram believed the Lord. So God makes this seemingly ridiculous claim of his offspring outnumbering the stars in the sky, and Abram looks up and he goes, yeah, I can get behind that. So we have this outlandish example of faith that Abram provides for us. And this isn't the only time that he acts that way. The book of Genesis has these other examples of faithfulness that he exudes from taking his son to be sacrificed at the altar, like thank God that didn't work out, uh, to leaving his country without knowing where his home would be. The faith of Abraham is venerated even throughout the New Testament. And no, he's not perfect. We all know that. But this is the type of faith that God is calling us to. And his promise to us is that we can rely on him for everything we will ever need if we act in this way. And he wants us to trust him so we can live and experience his full abundance. But I know that's hard. Don't get me wrong. For me to just stand up here and say, have this kind of faith, I understand. It's not an easy thing to do. Why? Well, in the book that we're using uh, to guide this series, as I mentioned before, called Slow Church, the writer hits on this concept called the myth of scarce resources, which essentially says the things we need in order to sustain human life are scarce. And when we buy into the concept of the myth of scarce resources, which is very easy to do, particularly in America, um, a lot of fears can develop from believing that myth. And so for our purposes today, what I want to do is focus on two fears that I believe can paralyze us and prevent us from enjoying the abundance that God offers us. 
And we're going to draw on some stories from the Bible and talk about how we can neutralize these fears as we step towards having uh, the faith that Abraham has. So fear number one, the fear of not having enough. And for this, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, 30 through 44. I'll give you a few minutes if you want to flip there in the Bible in front of you. And this is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It says this, starting in 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, five. And we found a couple of fish. (laughs) Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. They don't count the families, so maybe it's double. I don't know, maybe more than that. There's a lot of people here that are eating this meal. One cool part of this story is that everyone who is there gets enough to eat. They have their fill. Furthermore, there are leftovers I think maybe this happens because Jesus doesn't allow the disciples to give in to the fear that they experience by potentially not having enough food. Jesus shows this abundant faith by taking the food they have, the five loaves and two fish, and he blesses it. He places his own trust in God and knows and understands the lessons taught through the story of Abraham and the abundance that will flow when he fully places his trust in the Lord. Jesus is literally bringing the kingdom of heaven into this space by performing this miracle. He's showing people what life can be like when we put our trust in the right place. Secondly, this story is an indication that things are changing or maybe have changed because the way people are interacting, I mean, they see him on this boat and they're trying to get away from him and this crowd of people who had just heard a bunch of teaching from Jesus before, they run him down and they want to be with him, right? So they're there, and it's late, and they're listening, and they're just hanging out all day, and it's in a remote area, and it's dark, and they're still not sick of each other. Not only are they enjoying the messages from Jesus, but they're enjoying being in community together, and then they share this miraculous and festive meal. 
And I think all of this happens because Jesus has compassion, he practices hospitality, and he practices a deep faith in God. Um, And he, I'm sorry, he shows a deep faith in God, uh, being able to provide the sustenance necessary to keep this party going, which I think is really cool. And I think that's how Jesus might help us conquer fear number one. So fear number two, giving it all away. And for this, we're going to be in Mark 10, so just a few pages, verses 17 through 27, and this is the story of the rich young ruler. Here it is. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, make sure you honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and he loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus decides he's going to tell a joke to the kids there. And he's like, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So we've got these two examples, right, of Jesus showing us how we're supposed to live. One is a miracle where Jesus takes this small amount of food and he multiplies it into enough to feed thousands of people. And then the other is a story about a man who wants to know exactly what he needs to do to get in heaven. Jesus tells him he needs to give up everything and he can't handle it. And the ideas in these stories are two things our world has a tough time accepting. And if we look at these two stories as extremes, one where there's not enough and one where there's just too much, I mean, maybe worldly wisdom would say that the best way to rationalize this would to be find, to find some spot right in the middle, right? So we don't want to live either of these ways. Let's find a comfortable spot in the middle. But you know that's not the truth. We're seeking balance because it's not comfortable living in the extremes. But Jesus calls us to live a life where the pendulum swings drastically towards giving it all away. And both of these stories have that in common. In feeding the 5,000, Jesus asked the disciples to hand over all the food they have And in the rich young ruler parable, Jesus says the same. He's asking for a level of faith that asks us to give up comfort and balance in exchange for living a life of radical sacrifice. And that is where I think we find the Lord's abundance. We've got a couple of examples from the early church to highlight this for us. And now we're in Acts, book of Acts. This is chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. 
All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. A couple chapters later in chapter 4, 32 through 35 says this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed uh, that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. There it is again, man. Like, I know this way of living is hard. Um, I don't do this, right? I do my best, (laughs) and I'm trying to get to that point, but I think it is a process. Um, So I was thinking about, you know, these thoughts and how I want to live and and how we might be able to do this as individuals and as like a church community, right? And ultimately, man, I, you know, I, I don't think this is like some Marie Kondo tidying up uh, declutter type of venture. I think what we have to do is push ourselves to make following Jesus a true sacrifice. I mean, if God can come to earth as a man and then die, so I don't have to live, or so, so I can live in freedom from the bondage of sin, uh, making sure my community has access to everything God has trusted me with doesn't seem like a bad trade-off. Um, but really, like, where do we start? So I have an idea, and um, so there's this concept that I love, and I've seen it work well in my community and in some churches, and uh, I took a trip to Kenya about a year and a half ago, and I saw it work there, and it's called asset-based community development. And what I really love about this concept is that it focuses on the positive things that a community has to offer. So there is some deconstruction, but there's reconstruction afterwards, which I think is really important. Very basically, what asset-based community development strives to do is identify what assets are available uh, within a community, and then it aims to use these resources for the betterment of the people living in the community. And this happens on three levels. The first level is individuals, like you and me. The second one is uh, citizen associations, our churches, neighborhood associations, cultural groups, those kind of things. And then the third one is through our local institutions, so like parks, schools, businesses, etc. Luckily enough for us, one of our ladies groups is going through the Slow Church book together, and they recently decided to do some asset mapping. And basically, you just take a list of the things that a, that a place can offer and then compile that list. And then when people come into your church for need um, or when we go out and decide that we want to, uh, to do things that way, we know exactly who we can contact and whether or not we can help meet that need. And I think that's really important for a church to, um, to think about because I think maybe Jesus is calling us to do this for our community based on the passages that I read in Acts. So 
Look, uh, I'm going to have us do some, some group work here, which will be really fun. And Alicia G is going to come up and lead us through that. So, and by the way, guys, Alicia and Rob just spent the weekend with a couple of elementary kids at an event called Superstart. Will you give them a round of applause for doing that? Man, seriously, no, seriously. Those of us who sent our kids with you are very, very grateful. So, All right, Eric's going to come up and close us in prayer, and then you can continue to chat, um, you know, hang out, see where we're all going to eat lunch. I don't know. So here we go. Eric, thank you. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you that you're in control. And um, Lord, teach us to recognize maybe our fears and commit them to you. And teach us also to let go and trust you. And I just pray for this day, pray for this week. Thank you for this city. I just pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.